0: Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hello, everybody. Before I introduce the guest for today, I want to make sure to mention two things. First of all, it is very exciting to get a sense of the demographics of the listeners for the show and how many people listen each week, and also we're able to chart where the podcast is popular around the world. And over the last month, we've noticed a spike in listeners in the UK, the Netherlands, Eastern Europe, South America, Australia, and New Zealand. It is very exciting. And as I asked before, if any of you from places far away from where we are here in the United States want to be in touch with us. And write to us at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com and let us know where you're from and what is it about the podcast that speaks to you based on where you live or your government, your history. We would love to learn about that. And thank you. And let us know, too, if there's particular content that you would like us to provide for you that would be helpful to you that you'd like to be able to share with the people who live around you. And also... I want to remind people that I have been requested to not only provide a former cult member support group, and meanwhile, by former cult member, I also mean people who have been in relationships with controllers and malignant narcissists, that while I provide one here for people in the United States, there was a request, and kind of a recurring request, from people in the U.K., and so if you're interested, let me know. And when I have enough people to really put together a group, I will be happy to do that. And so be in touch with me for the group at show at gmail.com or my private email, bernsteinlmft at gmail.com. I really look forward to hearing from you. And for today, we are very excited to have john sawyer back on he is somebody whose story is so powerful for a lot of people it's so relatable for a lot of people john was raised in two homes influenced by both high demand religion and secular worldviews prior to his parents divorce at the age of four his family was involved with both transcendental meditation and christian science Shortly after his parents' divorce, his mother took a secular route while his father converted to Pentecostal and charismatic Christianity. Quite a change. While John's father sprinkled elements of transcendental meditation and Christian science into his childhood, his dad's newfound evangelical Christian faith fixated on the end of the world, divine healing, speaking in tongues, and the quote-unquote prosperity gospel. When John was 15, he himself decided to convert to Mormonism. From the age of 15 to 35, John was involved with various high-demand religious groups that were associated with both charismatic Christianity and Mormonism, and as a teen who was deeply conflicted about his attraction to the same sex, John attended the now-defunct Spirit Life Bible College, associated with Roberts Learden Ministries in Orange County, California. While at Spirit Life Bible College, John experienced multiple sessions of exorcism and conversion therapies that were aimed at healing, quote unquote, his sexual identity. When John was 26, he became involved with Sovereign Grace Churches, a group that began during the Charismatic Jesus movement in the 1970s and eventually adopted a neo-Calvinistic theology that emphasized strict gender roles and courtship practices. John separated from organized religion six years ago at the age of 35, and since that time, John has benefited from somatic therapy, completed both a BA and MA in education, and is currently a doctoral student and researcher at the University of Colorado at Boulder. Partly due to the influence of his experiences with high-demand religious groups, John now studies the intersection of education policy and anti-discrimination law. I'm excited to have you hear the second part of my two-part conversation with John. He's the kind of guy who has experienced so much and is studying so many interesting things that I probably could have talked to him for days. Here's John now. Okay. So then go for it. Tell me what happens next. Okay.
1: Okay. So senior year of high school, I am listening to Robert Laird and he's still out there. though so he's recreated himself in many different forms. And is, in my view, not the, the influence that he once was, though maybe he still is because I'm not in those circles. I don't know. But I was, was faced at, at a point of transition from high school to college. I had been a musician and had decided that I wanted to possibly study music education and I had even uh, auditioned and most and all of this is through the influence of my secular parents I had auditioned uh, to the local university where I was raised and had received a scholarship and so my my education was going to be paid for um at, at this university and I Told my secular parents, I told my music teachers, I told my friends, I'm going to go to college, I'm going to go to this school and, and pursue music. While, on the other hand, with my religious parents still wrapped up in some of these revival movements, and I'm listening to Mr. Lairdon and hearing that he had started a Bible college. Um, And so I'm starting to think through my religious parents' influence that maybe my next step is to pursue, quote unquote, the high call of God and go to this Bible college. And so I had various experiences where people in my religious parents' uh, spheres were giving me prophetic words that you're supposed to go to this school. Now, they knew that I was thinking about it, but then they would assume the voice of God and say, this is the direction you're supposed to go you know, because people knew about this guy back then. And at the end of my senior year, my secular parents went on a trip uh, for a weekend. My religious parents knew that I wanted to go to the the religious college, quote unquote, college, it was an indoctrination center, but um, they ended up buying me a plane ticket. And while my secular parents were away, Essentially, I was whisked off to California and had not did not tell my secular parents or anybody until the night before I left. I wrote an email. And this was in the days that people didn't have smartphones. And so you knew if you sent an email to somebody and they weren't present, they're not going to read it until they got back. So I sent an email to my parents. I sent an email to my my Mormon friends and um, because they were still somewhat involved in my life. The night before I left, somehow I was at my dad's house. My Mormon friend's father, uh, along with his son and a couple of other um, kids, I somehow found my dad's house and knocked on the door. And um, I was in the back room and I heard them say, we are concerned about John. We heard he's going off to this college. Can we talk to him? And at that point, I'm starting to shake and i'm I'm starting to cry, and my dad is saying, "No, you can't talk to him, you can't talk to him." And then an interesting thing happened. Uh, it went from that to an aggression where then the Mormon leader, the the dad of my friends, said, "Well, if we can't see him, you need to relay a message to John that he is in an act of apostasy because i had still I was technically still on LDS Church records. And he needs to remove his name from the records of the Church of Jesus Christ. So it turned into this very like disciplinary message that I was receiving. So anyway, made my way to California. The first week that I was enrolled in this program at what was called the Spirit Life Bible College, it's now defunct. They had a, um, a week that they called clean out week. And this was where all the students who were part of this group would be in these intense Sessions of speaking in tongues, praying in tongues, they had what were called warfare tongues where you're using tongues to combat the devil um, there 's you know music that 's playing and loud and preaching, and people that are coming and laying hands on you very firmly. It was very militant um, this was the type of group again, this is part of robert flarden 's tribe. Um, He, you know, drove a BMW. He had guys around him that were sort of like secret service people that were around him. So he was a rock star, a prophet and an apostle. And the story I'm going to share now, Rachel, you know, listener discretion, but I think it's important that I share this story because it really, I think, underscores how harmful some of these things can be. I'm involved in this quote unquote clean out week. I am in a session of ecstatic worship, if you will. And by the way, I had had to divulge my sinful tendencies and whatnot to this group. And so they had on record somewhere that I was struggling with my sexual identity or or what have you. I don't know if this played into it, but in my mind, I wanted to be healed from being a, a, a gay person. This was, in my mind, demonic. This was something that I needed to be fixed. And in one of these sessions where um, I'm in this ec- ecstatic form of worship, uh, Mr. Laird and jumped off the stage because he had been leading um, the group speaking in tongues and yada, yada, jumped off the stage, slammed me in the forehead, and I fell backwards. And um, he sat on my chest and began to cast out demons of all sorts of different demons and there's music playing there's students all around so this is all in public right and at that time Rachel I assumed this the voice of a demonic entity and it feels crazy to say it now but I did I started to curse him and started to fight back you know and use this this strange voice And then I had some of the men who were his secret service come and hold me down and pin me down while he continued to cast out these devils. At that point, I I started not to be able to breathe. And and, and so I went from sort of playing the role to saying, I can't can't breathe. I can't breathe. And and, and then um, he got up off of me. And then they started to play this song um, that was popular in the Pentecostal groups, which is, when I think about Jesus and what he's done for me, when I think about Jesus and how he set me free, I'm going to dance, 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 right? They're playing this song, and so I I get up, and I just start to dance, but there was nothing liberative about it. It was almost like I could see myself dancing, but devoid of, like, of any passion. It was a very strange experience after that and that led to the next 2 years of some other experiences along those lines including being sent to a quote-unquote reparative therapist who did like talk therapy with me about my sexual identity and these types of things. But the one of the the parts of this whole story, this time of my life that was devastating to me is when there was a scandal that happened in the church and I happened to be living in the home of one of the leaders at the time. And so I, I was privy to what had happened, but uh, Mr. Lairdin had been in a, a homosexual relationship with one of the, the youth pastors in the group, and had employed spiritually and manipulative tactics that led to this being exposed, and this, you know, couple thousand member church dwindling and falling apart. Um, and it crushed me because I was such a believer and believed that I was there to be healed and had no idea that there was, um, that Mr. Mr. Lairdon, uh was, was homosexual potentially. And that was, that was hard. That was hard. Uh, okay.
0: There's so much intensity to what you just said. and And going back to a comment you made that, you know, that this might sound strange for you to say, or in that context, no, not at all. I mean, you were going to speak like a demon if you either really believed that he was releasing demons from you or that it was a way subconsciously for you to get him off your chest, right? I mean, like, you know, I don't know. There's the survival instinct that kicks in where you can do what is expected of you so that you survive that moment, but also... For you to be so engaged and to be acting in a way that's so different from yourself shows just how manufactured that whole environment is. From the crowds to the music, the fervor, the intensity, the way he's speaking to you, you being pinned down and powerless, you're going to fight back. And you're not going to necessarily fight back as yourself, but you might fight back as a demon. I mean, it. it you know, when people think about themselves in those kinds of contexts, they think, how, "How did that happen to me?" And it's usually because of not only even from that moment, but leading up to that moment, all the influence leading up to that moment. So here, going to this reparative place, I would like for you to talk about that. I mean, I'm sure just even going back to talking about the experience of, you know, this kind of demonic possession, exorcism, it's emotional for you to talk about. And I can, I can see that as you're talking. And, and so I don't want to overlook that. I also know that, that I want to be able to hear about conversion quote unquote therapy, because it is something That the law is trying to address now, and that they're trying to slow down, but it still exists in in certain forms and in certain sort of secret pockets of this world, right? So let's talk about that
1: experience. Sure, and and I, Rachel was. I'm I'm sitting here with this internal dialogue that's saying, "Should you have shared that?" But I, I think I should have, and and here's why. I recognize that the more that I tell this story. The the more I and and I couldn't have done this even two years ago, but but now it's a reminder to me that I'm not there anymore. And it's a reminder to me that I've that I have gained a certain amount of autonomy and strength and and power over my life that I once did not have. And so fuck it. I'm gonna tell the story. Right. right With the conversion therapy, it disclosed my secrets, right? And things weren't working. I was still wrestling with homosexual thoughts. This is the kind of pronounced part of this story: is I want to be healed. So I'm I'm going to be in this session where I'm I'm going through deliverance <laughs> sessions, exorcisms, et cetera. I had come out to to the faculty not in a like a way that you know I'm I'm coming out for pride or whatever, but because I wanted to be helped. And Lairdon's mother was sort of the administrative arm of his group. And she had learned about my homosexual tendencies and had then apparently approached her son. And her son was sort of the spokesman for the group, the apostle, the prophet. And he had been seeing a apparently legitimate therapist, right? And so I was told, here, we're going to send you to this guy who Roberts has even gone to see. And in my mind, I didn't even connect that maybe I had something to do with homosexual identity or whatever. And I said, okay. And, and they said, and, and we're gonna pay for you. <laughs> we're gonna pay for it. Roberts is gonna pay for it himself. So I'm like, whoa, I'm on his radar. Wow, he's gonna pay for me. So I, I went and had you know several sessions and it was really the standard, well, let's talk about your controlling mother talking about um, how my sexual identity had been distorted because of female control and those type of things. It was not as sensational as the story I told you regarding the exorcisms, but it still cemented in my mind that there is something that needs to be fixed here.
0: Right. And also the inherent misogyny that is rampant that I think a lot of people don't realize the, the mother is blamed for for this. And it, I even hate to use the word blame because there's nothing wrong with what you are. So to be blamed for nothing but doesn't make any sense. But right, the woman, the
1: mother is often blamed.
0: And that just gets added to the mix here. Okay. So go ahead.
1: Yeah. So it was, uh, I went through these these sessions and you know, they. I was in such a, a fragile state emotionally that that I can't even speak to what was happening in these talk sessions much because I felt really numb at that point in my 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 journey. If that makes sense, like I had started to dissociate. And I I would respond in ways where I would just hide, you know, and I'd disappear. And, you know, one time I was just so overwhelmed and so numb and so anxious. And I don't know, whatever was happening in my brain at that time, I went and I actually physically hid in a closet. And I lived with roommates and I put clothes over me. And I was there for several hours um, just in this little cocoon because it felt safe for me. And, you know, one of my roommates came and he he saw me and said, what the hell are you doing, man? It was just a very traumatic part of my life that led into many other struggles uh, throughout the course of my 20s and and early 30s. But I think really it didn't start there. It started when I was very young, seeing demons and angels and all of that. Uh, But it it was accentuated at that time and really started to to manifest in, in physical ways. Right.
0: Okay. So, you know, even when you were talking about the story and, and I am glad that you shared the other story because right, you are such a different person than that story. I was going to say you're a different person. Now you've always been the same person, but you can, people can bring out certain traits and behaviors and beliefs in you given kind of the perfect storm of scenarios and situations and beliefs and environments. So I think when you were talking about then they put on this music that where everyone was supposed to dance and you were just not feeling it. That feels to me like that was towards the beginning of this dissociation.
1: Right. Then you were kind of going on automatic pilot. It went from like having these legitimate like spiritual experiences where I felt very, hip, you know, hypnotized to very mechanical And it turned, and these experiences of speaking in tongues and all of that became very performative for me. And it was like I could just see myself, but I was not, I was not there.
0: Before we move on from the conversion therapy, I think for people to know, I mean, there there are some situations with conversion therapy that are really torture and others where it is influencing you verbally and, and spiritually without it being physical. Can you give just a, an example of what a conversion therapy session
1: would be like?
0: What would happen?
1: So it was primarily me sitting in a room with with another male who was a therapist asking me about my childhood talking about my struggle with same sex attraction and it would turn into questions about abuse and you know were you sexually abused as a child and other questions that were really aimed at trying to find some reason that I had attraction to the same sex. Those really were the the thrust of the sessions. And then there were stories woven into the sessions about people who were confused about their sexual identity. And I remember this guy telling me a story about one of his clients who dressed up like a woman and the reason that he dresses up like a woman is because of these bad things that happened to him in his life. And so it was it was that type of, of environment. There was no physical things that were happening there, but it was just sort of this dialogue about very intimate parts of my life to try to identify the root of the gay problem.
0: Of the gape problem. Okay. Right. Which just reinforces this idea that there's something wrong with you. It has to have come from something, some aberrant, you know, interaction or, or abuse. And there've also been studies about a lot of the people who do this conversion therapy, who are the practitioners and the therapists, uh, where they're, they're struggling with their own identity. And this is a way for them to kind of deal with it or kind of call off the dogs so to speak right that you're not going to be under suspicion
1: i had learned later that this guy who i was sent to um was like i don't i don't know the right words but his license was removed because he had some type of sexual scandal that was happening between him and multiple patients so that i learned later um that was not my experience fortunately but but yeah right
0: right and you hear about that a lot and similar to the pastor that you were talking about. who was exercising you from the thing that he was doing. Okay. So then I'm curious, just one more thing about that before we move on, how do you know when you're done with therapy that is meant to cure you of something that
1: isn't a problem?
0: When do you have your last session
1: based upon what? Well, something did happen toward the end of that first year at the the spirit life Bible college, it was a cohort model so you you were in a group with students and then and it was a two year program and i had was still as i thought at the time struggling and so i was i was pretty open about that with some people in positions of power i was held back the like robert Lairdon's mother the administrator she said because of your lack of spiritual maturity um, you would need to repeat your first year. So and it had nothing to do with academics or anything. And um, um, so that was like right around the same time that my, my conversion therapy sessions like ended. So I don't know if, if he reported me and said, this guy isn't getting healed or whatever, but something happened right around that time where then I was told, you can't go on to your second year. You need to repeat your first year, uh, which was, oh, it was humiliating to me.
0: Yeah. Oh, that sounds awful. But you were saying that that you were having physical manifestations or physiological manifestations, emotional issues. Tell us a little bit about
1: the impact overall for you. Around the age 24, 25. And this is not long after I left that group. I didn't really leave it because the group imploded and I got involved with another church that was sort of a, a branch off of that church in Texas and I started working. I was working in a hotel at a front desk. And, and for me, it actually, that was very good. It was like, Ooh, like normalcy, you know, the good type of normalcy. Um, but I was, I had not been in therapy or anything. So, so my life was very, I was either on or off. I was, I was either very much in the game, the life game, or I was totally out of it and, and very and depressed. Um, I had times where I could, I, Literally was in bed and not just not being able to get out of bed, but feeling like uh, a weight on my chest that was holding me, which is interesting to, to even name that now considering what I just told you, but I remember being in bed and feeling like physically held down to the bed and not being able to get out of bed. So that was sort of my life. And then I'd somehow snap out of it and I would go back to work or whatever. And, you know, came to a point where I contemplated suicide. I wrote a suicide note. I started researching methods of suicide. Um, I went to the HR of the hotel I was working at and said, you know, I think I may need some help. And they gave me a number and I called, but I, I had been raised through my religious parents to be pretty skeptical of therapists. And so I got the number, I called, but didn't ever have any sessions right around that time. And I heard one of your guests say that like getting involved with cults is like a mixture of a like a good heart and bad circumstances or something. Um, Right around that time, um, I met a family who was part of a group called Sovereign Grace Ministries. Um, They were involved with, they had been known as People of Destiny International. They had been born out of the charismatic Jesus movement in the 70s, but then they had made this sort of shift into very doctrinaire, puritanical, um, evangelical purity culture, Very patriarchal men in authority. They are the leaders, women are the followers. But I met this family um, right around that very tender time where I'm contemplating suicide, and they invited me to church. And I was like, um, you know, part of me was like, uh, I don't know if I should do this. And the other part of me is like, they're so nice. These people are so nice, and they don't remind me of the kind of bombastic, charismatic people that I was around you know they felt so wholesome and and so I went to their church and it was this weird mix of like charismatic worship with the band and all of that but then it kind of reminded me of Mormonism because there was like this patriarchal view of authority and there were many homeschoolers in the group and gender roles were huge they have these notions of biblical masculinity and femininity. And I got sucked in to the group, just got sucked right in. And there was a time that I saw things and was like, Ooh, maybe you should back up here and not get a part of this group. But it felt, quote unquote, so good to, to have this like loving, and there was like love bombing happening all over the place, especially with this. Family that I had met, the past he the, the father was a pastor and sort of royalty in this group, and um, I had his his ear. He became my quote unquote biblical counselor, and right away I'm saying talking to him about my sexual identity, and he's saying, "Well, you know, John, we we all have our sins. I wrestle with laziness. Some people wrestle with anger. You just happen to wrestle with sexual identity." But let me ask you this. Do you have any attraction to women? Yeah, yeah, a little. Okay, we're going to go with that. We need to get you married. We need to find you, find you a wife. Um, and this group had these very puritanical courtship rituals based on a, a book that had written by a guy named Josh Harris called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, um, where essentially in order to pursue a relationship, you had to ask the approval of your spiritual leaders. You then had to Ask the approval of the father of the woman that you were pursuing. I'm um, sorry, in that group, I went through a couple of, of quote unquote courtships where I'm essentially dating the dads for a couple of months before giving permission to date the women. Um, in one of these courtships, you know, and at this point, I'm like 29 or 30, and I'm being chaperoned uh, on dates by the parents of. Of the the, the the women that I'm, I'm quote unquote pursuing and those didn't work out.
0: Okay. And those didn't work out. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so you didn't get married in that church and that's a really good thing. I'm really glad to hear that.
1: I think you're right. Yeah. It was about a six year involvement, six or seven year involvement with that group. Okay.
0: Okay. Right. Cause that would have been just another situation too feel bad about and wonder what's wrong with you and feel less than. Yeah. So then what happened after that?
1: Well, this, the biblical counseling that I had mentioned was for the better part of five or six years. And it went from um, me being constantly validated and affirmed about what a humble, oh, and this group was very big into humility. So if you confess, or you, if you confessed something, they were like, you are so humble. Like, I commend you on your humility, right? And you would get props for that. So I got into this relationship with this pastor where I'm. anytime I'm struggling with anything, anytime I'm having a mental health issue, whatever, it started out with, I commend you for your godliness and your humility. Well, the longer we went on, and remember, I hadn't had any like real therapy at this point. It turned from, you're amazing. You're gonna be a pastor in our group someday. We just need to make sure you get married and you know yada, yada, to being removed from the inner circle of this group and and being ostracized in in a very passive way, but very pronounced, so uh, passively pronounced way. when that started to happen, it was hard to make sense of it, and that led me to continuing to have some you know manifestations in my body of uh, that were telling me that. Things are not going well right now with you, getting sick a lot in just a really agonizing part of my life. And so at the very end, being part of this group, Sovereign Grace Group, I decided through a variety of circumstances, I had had lost my job and my secular parents, let's bring them back. They started to be more of an influence again. And uh, my stepfather said, hey, if you want to go back to college, go back to university, I'll help you pay for that right? So I, I went to the University of North Texas, and I started studying there. And it was really being open uh, or getting into that environment where I was exposed to like therapy through the Student Resource Center. And I, I went there. And I started meeting with a therapist and started to work through those things. I was still part of this group, the Sovereign Grace group. So I was very defensive of it. And I remember the therapist, you know, even saying like, why are you in a place where people aren't validating you or loving you? Why, why are you in this conditional, you know, love situation? And you need to be in a place where people love you and accept you. And I just remember thinking she doesn't get it. But there was part of, of that therapy that was very helpful and led to other therapy that became more effective and to working with therapists who employed like somatic therapy and EMDR to help to process some of, of all of this. Um, and which through that, through the courses from good therapy, you know, ended up completing my, my undergraduate degree at the age of 38, and got my master's degree at the age of 40, and I'm currently in the doctoral program.
0: You have been on quite a journey, and it continues, although this is a really wonderful part of it. And what I think is so wonderful about this part is that it is a dis- distinguishing mark from what you were talking about is that it feels that there is a clear and forward trajectory so much of what you talked about i you know i visualize things when people are talking so i visualize this kind of circular nature it kept coming back to something coming back to wanting to either be healed or wanting to be in the same familiar environment and being set on the right path. And so there's something that can feel like you're making lateral moves or you're making regressive moves. And now it feels like there is this eye to the future and what your life can be. So just as we're finishing up, so tell us about your life now. What does it feel like? Who's a part of it? Go
1: ahead. Yeah, I've heard of the notion of post-traumatic growth, um, and I, I resonate with that. I'm, I'm in a good place, Rachel. I, I want to say that because sometimes I tell, you know, if I tell this story or or whatnot, I guess I, d- I don't want pity for my story, um, uh, And uh, but but I do want to say that, like, it still is impactful for me. It's why I'm here on this program, and it influences me every day, every day. But through the the work that I've done in relationship with uh, a therapist where the, there's been like real give and take, real tension, working through conflict, working through misunderstanding, um, a permission to be angry and to get really fucking angry about things um, and to push back, you know, those things over the last five or six years have been lifesaver quite literally working in a in an academic environment now is one that has been been very helpful for me as well it gives a context for what I think was with me from a very young age which is a desire to question and desire to look into things and desire to research Um, and I'm doing that now and and I'm thrilled about that Um, I want to say you know in closing that I'm very skeptical of any claims of like, I'm healed, right? I went through all this, and my life is great now, and I am so happy, and everything's perfect, because that's just not my reality. But I am in a place where I can name my emotions, and I can recognize when I'm angry, and when I'm sad, and when I'm numb, and when just being able to acknowledge that, and accept that um, has been, that's huge growth for me. I'm so glad to hear that you're in a good place. And
0: I think, yes, being able to have your emotions and also without judgment, without self-judgment. If there's something else that you did want to say, please do say it. Uh, And I'm also wondering, too, if you have a message based on your experience for
1: people who are in the situations that you were in. One thing that I wanted to say, and that I think will be helpful, perhaps for some who resonate with my story is that it is so good to question things. And it is so good to even question things that the culture accepts as or says is like, this is the way to be or or what have you. And and what what I'm saying about that is, I have sometimes struggled with how skeptical I am now of even working, a, and I wanna, with a caveat saying, I am for social justice and I am for equity and for work along anti-racism and anti-homophobia and all of that. One thing that I have struggled with, however, in my academic setting is whenever something is presented to me in a dogmatic way, no matter how altruistic the message or in an authoritarian way, even if it's the, the most equitable idea in the world, my body reacts. Like I feel my body reacting. And, and I've just come to recognize that, that that's that's okay. That's part of the process. It's part of learning to think critically and to really form my own values and make my own decisions. And so I hope that resonates with somebody in in your own path of healing and process of healing. Thank you so much, John. I I really appreciate you
0: taking the time to talk about these experiences and to share what you've learned, but in a very honest way to be able to talk about how you can get out of one thing get into another, get out of another, get into another. And So much of that, I think, is about not yet resolving what you're wanting to resolve or not yet feeling what you want to be feeling. If it's self-acceptance, then these things that you got involved in are going to keep pushing that away farther from you. And so you have to leave them in order to feel it. And uh, you don't, I think, know that at the time because you think the next experience will heal you. So again, thank you. And i truly appreciate the insights. And I know these are not easy things to talk about. And I I wish you well in all the work that you're doing that I know is going to make a huge amount of difference.
1: And thank you again. Thank you, Rachel. I I appreciate the work you're doing. I think it's really important. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye.
0: One more thing before you go. I am so happy you got to hear John talk about his experiences and his older development and also starting his studies. And I can't wait actually to see what he studies and what he finds out about and when he finishes his doctoral program, all that he's going to be doing and sharing and teaching others. A lot of times I work with people who are dealing with the fallout that comes from other people trying to save them. I deal with it in very small ways. As I've mentioned here on the podcast, a lot of the houses in my neighborhood get targeted by people trying to convert me and save me. And it's usually on the holiest of days in my own tradition that people come to my door to change me. And it is highly insulting and the hubris of it. I always find unnerving that people can just assume they know what's best for me or that there isn't something acceptable about the way I am. What I have noticed is that a lot of times when people jump in to save other people, it's in the saving that they get traumatized. They think that they see something wrong with someone, that they have the devil in them. Or in some situations, I've worked with people who have been involved in raids that were done on their compounds or within their family unit, where the raid itself was the traumatizing thing. Yes, in some of those situations, they did need to be rescued. But yes, in most of those situations, it should have and could have been done differently. What you have here is people deciding that you are just not okay the way you are, and that they need to convert you, or they need to expel The negative entity, the evil entity within you. So they've already made a leap past what we know to be true now, which is that there is a wide spectrum of identity, of gender identity, sexual identity, and that it is all within the norm. So we're dealing with people who have a viewpoint that already doesn't match what science knows. And because they're going off of this calculation, this equation that's false, they have decided that it equals that they have to fix a person. And it's usually in the fixing that the person who they're sure is possessed by the devil or living an evil life, well, the fixing is the thing that leaves these people traumatized. It is having this pastor sitting on John's chest so he can't breathe in order to help him. It is in people who need to go for this conversion therapy, which John also went through, that leaves them traumatized physically, emotionally, in order to fix them. I want anyone who thinks that they know what's best for someone else to first realize that they're probably wrong. But second, you want to think through how you're gonna be approaching that. If I thought that someone was eating something that wasn't good for them, and I just went up to them and I just smacked it out of their hand in front of people, and their plate and everything went crashing down to the ground, I bet that would affect them much more negatively than the fact that it was a donut that they might not want to eat because it might not be good for them. You don't want to hurt in your effort to help. And you don't also want to assume somebody needs your help. I think there are a lot of people also who I work with who were those people who really thought they were helping. People who were recruiting people into religious environments that then they saw as cults after a while people who were recruiting people into a certain belief system or a certain kind of large group awareness training, something that turned out, or even multi-level marketing, something that turned out to really drain people as opposed to fill them up in some positive way, that really served to control them as opposed to free them, that did the opposite of what they promised. They walk around having a tremendous amount of remorse and guilt because of the machine they were involved in that they just didn't realize was eventually going to be running people over. And I want you to really take a moment. If you're in that kind of situation now where you're trying to help people think, am I actually helping them? Are they getting any better or are they getting worse? There are a lot of people who will say, because they're sort of still convinced that they're helping you, That if you seem to be getting worse and worse, well, that's just the toxins coming to the surface and that's the evil spirits coming out of you. No, it's that you are actually traumatizing these people and you are making them worse, or you are keeping them from being able to do the thing that they really need to do, which is to be in an environment that tells them they are okay the way they are. That would really help them. That's being a good person in somebody's life. So when we deal with trauma, we deal with many layers of impact. We deal with not only post-traumatic stress. In a lot of these situations, people will talk about having complex post-traumatic stress because it's come in so many different forms or they went from one group into another. They we're dealing with being going through exorcisms and then conversion therapy. That turns into a complex trauma that at different times you were abused and at the hands of different people, and it impacted you in so many ways. And for those people, it's very important if you've been through this to get support, to get help, because there is this idea that when you are dealing with trauma, you look for protection rather than connection. Because protection is where you're safe. But protection usually means you live a very isolated, lonely life because you're too afraid to connect. And you're too afraid for good reason. Not only because you've been abused by people, but because a lot of the messages for a lot of people have sunk in. That there is something wrong with them, that maybe they do have an evil spirit in them, or they're going to be rejected if they connect with somebody. And so there's so much of this negative self-concept that people are walking around with when they're treated this way from the start and being told that the way they were born is wrong. What's also true is that a lot of the people who are at the forefront of these conversion therapies, who are the ones who are doing these exorcisms, They themselves have things they want to hide. They themselves are trying to redirect attention away from themselves onto others to keep prying eyes, to keep the spotlight off of them. So it's very self-serving. And I've had a couple of clients over the years who were gay or trans who were the ones conducting these exorcisms, who were the ones involved in doing horribly abusive Conversion therapies on people. They were hoping that no one would see it in themselves. So they had to overcompensate by being so against it that they were going to help other people free themselves of this. And after a while, they just couldn't reconcile the conflict inside the conscience that was being tweaked by them doing this. And what they found is that they were victims too, that they were victims of environments that turned the victims into perpetrators in order to protect themselves. There's so much wrong, of course, with all of that. It can all be avoided by people deciding to focus on other things and what matters. Because it's not how you're wired that matters, unless you're wired to be a sociopath. Okay, then all bets are off. That's fine. You can intervene. But if you're wired to see yourself a certain way, or to be attracted to certain people, or to just be different than your neighbor, but that you're still a good person, that's all that should matter. And if that could be the focus, it would save people so much trauma. They wouldn't have to deal with this at the hands of other people, and they wouldn't have to participate in this in order to keep the focus off of them. So many people are left with self-hatred that is needless. And I'm so glad that John has gotten to the point where he's been able to move forward, where he's been able to decide to like himself enough to feel hopeful about having a future that will feel better than his past. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com/indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at @indoctrinationpodcast and for Twitter, find us at, at underscore @_indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow@gmail.com. At and for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.